Hey everyone, before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to share a disclaimer. If you haven't already seen in the title of the episode, this week we're talking about abortion, which I know can be a very sensitive or even triggering topic for some people. I know it's a topic that some people have no desire to hear about or learn about, and that is totally fine. Please feel free to tap out of this episode and come back next week for more Sam'splaining Science. But if you are interested, I do hope you stick around because we'll be talking about some science and statistics behind abortion in the United States, some effects that it has on the patient, as well as some research that has been done on effective ways to reduce the frequency of abortion. So yeah, you can close out or stick around. I love you either way. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Sam'splaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam'splaining the Science. Today, we're taking a listener question that was submitted through my website. If you have a question or topic that you want Sam'splained to you, you can ask it at samsplainingscience.com ask. This week's question reads, what are the effects of abortion on well-being? Is there more beneficial or harmful effects of abortion on a woman's life? Big question super relevant question in today's world. Although it's a tough and sometimes uncomfortable topic to talk about, I think it's important to talk about abortion access and also really important for us to understand what the procedure is and what the impacts are, especially when we're writing and passing legislation on the issue. So let's get into it. Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well and that your weeks are going well. I'm sorry this episode is a little late, two days late, $2 short, probably a little more than $2 if I'm being honest. Let's jump right into the topic for today's episode, which again is abortion. Like I said before, this week we're taking a listener question that asks about the effects of abortion on well-being. This question got submitted over a week ago and I started researching and writing this episode over the weekend, and I was going to record it on Monday night. Um, This podcast comes out on Tuesday mornings, and I have started really just recording on Monday night and editing immediately after and then posting immediately after that. So usually if you listen to this on Tuesday morning, it's like only a few hours delay behind when I'm actually recording it. Um... I've become a real last-minute, lazy lady. Um, I'd love to be a planner. I'd love to be a girly that, you know, plans ahead. But it's just not me. It's not my speed. I need time pressure to get anything done. Um, But yeah, as I was setting up to record on Monday night, news broke via Politico, which leaked a Supreme Court majority opinion that was written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, And in this opinion, um, or this opinion, if it were to be finalized into a Supreme Court decision, would overturn the 1973, I believe, 1970s case of Roe versus Wade, which was the Supreme Court case that guaranteed a woman's right to a safe abortion under the premise of the right to privacy between the patient and their doctor. So it's very timely that I received this question. Um, I didn't plant it, I swear. I got it last week. I have receipts. Um, But yeah, that leak on Monday night, as it did for many of you, I'm sure, um, it made me really emotional. So I held off on recording until I could cool down a little bit. Because this podcast is not an opinion podcast. Although I have many opinions that I could share, um, it's a science podcast, right? I don't want my opinions to get in the way of the way that I communicate my science. As scientists, we're trained to identify bias and remove it from our study designs and remove it from our data reporting in order to keep science neutral, nonpartisan, as close to the truth as possible, factual, right? So that's what we're going to do today. Talk about abortion and those who undergo abortions in a nonpartisan, 
scientific way using data and science and facts. Obviously, abortion is a tough topic to talk about. Not everybody loves talking about it. Not everybody leaves conversations about it feeling better. I get it. Listen, it's no asparagus pee, okay? But with that being said, I think it's extremely important to learn and understand the science surrounding it, to find the truth through facts, and then make informed decisions and opinions based on those facts. And given that in our country right now, the right for people to access safe abortions is under attack, I think we need this science, these facts, more than ever. So with that, let's get into today's questions. If it's okay with you, anonymous question asker, I'm going to reorganize and sort of expand your question a bit to outline the sections of today's episode. So today we have four questions, which is like double what we usually have. Um, but the first question is, what is abortion? We're going to talk about how common the procedure is and what it entails. The second question is, what effects of abortion are there on a person's life? The third question, do abortion bans work? Spoiler alert, the answer is no. And that leads to our fourth and final question, which is, what does help reduce abortion rates? As always, my sources are linked in the episode description. Okay, so question one, what is abortion? How common is it? And what, do, what does the procedure entail? Abortion is a medical procedure in which a pregnancy is terminated. Or in the words of the CDC, it is an intervention performed by a licensed physician that is intended to terminate a suspected or known ongoing intrauterine pregnancy and that does not result in a live birth. I pulled some stats from the CDC abortion surveillance program, which is linked below, um, that cites data from 2019, so just a few years ago. In 2019, about 625,000 legal-induced abortions were reported for, to the CDC from 48 reporting areas, which I assume just is like United States, states and territories. Um, in those reporting areas, the abortion rate was 11.4 per 1,000 women between the ages of 15 and 44 or approximately 1% of women. The abortion ratio, which is a measure of number of abortions per number of live births, was 195 abortions per 1,000 live births. So five times more live births than abortions in 2019. Though these numbers have alternated between like increasing and decreasing from year to year during the 20 teens decade. So from 2010 to 2019, the trends were all downward with the number of abortions decreasing by 18%. The abortion rate of number of abortions per women decreased by 21% and the ratio of abortions per live births decreased by 13% during that decade. In 2019, a majority of abortions took place during early gestation at less than 13 weeks. For reference, full term is about 40 weeks. So 92.7% of abortions happened at 13 weeks or earlier. 92.7, a vast majority. 6.2% of all abortions performed in 2019 were performed between 14 and 20 weeks gestation. And then that leaves less than 1% of abortions in 2019 were performed at greater than 21 weeks. So essentially in the second half of gestation, less than 1% of, or I should say, less than 1% of abortions were performed at the second half of gestation in 2019. To give some more context, 
Um, a fetus is not viable. Um, not viable means that there's less than a 50% chance that the fetus will survive outside of the womb by itself. So a fetus is not viable until 24 weeks of gestation. At 24 weeks, the fetus has more than 50% chance of surviving on its own outside of the womb. But before then, it cannot. Odds are it won't. So in other words, based on these statistics that I just read out, over 99% of abortions were completed when the fetus was not viable to live outside of the womb. Just to give some context to all of these numbers and percentages and gestational ages, over 99% of abortions were completed when the fetus was not viable to live outside of the womb. Okay, so that's just some numbers, some statistics to talk about abortion um, based on data from the United States. Let's move on to talk about the actual procedure of abortion, and I am going to discuss the procedure in some, not major detail, but in some detail. So if that's something that you do not want to hear, something you're uncomfortable with hearing, you can just skip ahead like two minutes or so. Um, so see you in two minutes. Um, but for those of you who are curious about what exactly an abortion entails, the CDC classifies two separate types of abortion. One is medicinal and then the other is surgical. Medicinal abortions use, you guessed it, medicines, drugs, pharmaceuticals to terminate the pregnancy. You might have heard of the abortion pills. So um, this is essentially like a series of pills. Firstly uh, is a drug, mifeprestone. Probably got that wrong, but that drug stops the pregnancy from progressing by blocking the action of the hormone progesterone. Um, that drug can be administered vaginally or orally. And then about a day after a patient takes mifeprestone, um, they take the drug misoprostol, misoprostol. Um, and that is the drug that stimulates cramping and bleeding to empty the uterus. That drug is taken orally, um, so if a pregnant person is within 10 weeks gestation, they could take these pills to stop and void the pregnancy. Um, the pills can be taken at home, but typically the first dose can be given in a doctor's office, and then there's a follow-up appointment after the procedure is over. Surgical abortions use more surgical techniques to uh, terminate the pregnancy. So one example of this is a suction aspiration or a curatage procedure. So in a doctor's office, a person's given a local anesthetic and some oral pain medication before their cervix is manually dilated. The cervix is a very small opening in the vagina that leads to the uterus. So once that is dilated, the medical practitioner can insert a curette, which is like a tiny tube thing, and apply suction to empty the contents of the uterus. This procedure is usually done before 14 weeks of gestation and typically requires just one clinic visit with no follow-ups. In both of these cases, medicinal or surgical, the contents of the uterus, which includes the embryo if it's before eight weeks, or fetus if it's after eight weeks, are removed. And there's no evidence that either of these procedures affects the patient's ability to have children in the future. So there's no long-term implications for um, fertility post-medicinal or surgical abortion. There's no evidence for that. Okay, that's all we're going to talk about with the procedural stuff. Hopefully we're a bit more familiar with abortions in the United States and the most common procedures. Um, so now let's get into the second question, which was really what the listener question was about. Um, which is what are the impacts of an abortion on a person's well-being? Here I'm taking this solely from a physical approach because I think the mental and emotional effects of an abortion can vary case by case depending on the person and their life and their experience. Um, but I, I was interested in more of the physical effects because 
I think some of the talking points for those that argue against abortion claim that it's physically dangerous, that it's physically not safe. And from what I found, there's not enough sufficient data to suggest that that is the case. One study I found by Dr. Caitlin Gertz and colleagues that was published in 2015 in the journal Women's Health Issues, um, it's titled Side Effects, Physical Health Consequences, and Mortality Associated with Abortion and Birth After Unwanted Pregnancy. The aim of this study was to compare health outcomes of getting an abortion versus carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term. So participants were recruited across 30 clinics in the United States as part of a turnaway study where women were recruited after attending a clinic for seeking an abortion of an unwanted pregnancy. Women were classified into three groups. The first group was women who were three weeks over the particular clinic's gestational age limit to be denied an abortion. So these were called the turnaway group. They were basically too far along in the pregnancy to be allowed to have an abortion. So they, uh, ha they had no choice but to carry their unwanted pregnancy to term. Um, and this limit depended, it changed from clinic to clinic, but it ranged from 10 weeks to a little bit more than 20 weeks. So that was the first group called the turnaway group. They were turned away from abortion service. The second group was made up of women who were within two weeks under the term limit. Um, they were able to get an abortion, um, but they were just like close to the cutoff. So if the cutoff was say 12 weeks, they showed up at 11 weeks. So they like just made it in time um, in order to fit the term limit to get an abortion. That group was called the near limit abortion. The third group was the first trimester abortion group. And just like it sounds, it's someone who was allowed to get an abortion within the first trimester. So they showed up to the clinic at maybe seven or eight weeks and the clinic's um, limit was 12 weeks. So they were you know, not really close to the limit. They were within the first trimester so they were able to get an abortion. In all of these groups, all three groups, women self-reported their physical health consequences after birth or after abortion. And in, in particular, they were asked two questions. The first is, did you experience any side effects or health problems from your birth slash abortion? If so, what? The second question was, was there a period after the birth slash abortion where you were physically unable to do daily activities such as walking, climbing steps, or running errands? And if so, how long? These questions were asked about eight days post-abortion or about two and a half months after birth. So let's talk about the results. Firstly, I think it's important to note some differences in the group characteristics. So, for example, the size of the groups was different. They didn't recruit like 200 turnaways, 200 near limits, and 200 first trimester. Actually, it was kind of all over the place. So the turnaways, there was a, a little less than 150 turnaways. The near limit group was about 450 and the first trimester was a little over 250. Um, so the near limit and the first trimester groups were both larger in number of participants compared to the turnaway group. And again, the turnaway group was the group who carried their unwanted pregnancy to full term. Also interesting to note was that the turnaway group was almost two and a half years younger than the first trimester group on average. So the average turnaway was about 23.3 years old, and the average first trimester participant was 26 years old. All group, all three groups had similar levels of education. They were all equally as likely to be married, and they all had similar health histories. So really the only differences was the size of the groups and the average age of the groups. 
Now let's talk about the side effects and the health problems um, between the groups. The number of women, the total number of women reporting side effects within the three groups was not different. Um, whether the person gave birth or whether they had an abortion, it was consistent. Um, the number of side effects that were reported. Um, in the turnaway group, it was reported that they needed to limit their physical activity, like walking, for three times longer than those who elected to have abortions. So an average of 10 days of inactivity for people who gave birth versus three days for people who had abortions. So three times longer if they had to carry their pregnancy to full term and give birth. In the near limit and first trimester abortion groups, for both of these groups, the most common side effects were pain, cramps, abnormal bleeding, and nausea slash vomiting. Um, whereas the health problems that were reported by women in the turnaway group uh, who gave birth reported abnormal bleeding, anemia, eclampsia, which is high blood pressure caused seizures or coma. It's a very serious condition. Um, as well as postpartum hemorrhage and profuse bleeding. The study reports that a greater percentage of women in the turnaway group had potentially life-threatening conditions compared to the near-limit abortion group. So 6.3% of women in the turnaway group had potentially life-threatening conditions, whereas 1.1% of the women in the near-limit abortion group had potentially life-threatening conditions. Among all of the women enrolled in the study, which was 868, there was one maternal death that was reported. Um, a 21-year-old woman in the turnaway group passed away within 10 days of delivery after an infection that is associated with a higher risk of mortality in pregnant women relative to non-pregnant women. Um, there were no deaths in the abortion group, in either one of the abortion groups. This is Sam in the Future editing. Um, I misspoke. The woman who passed away was 24 years old, not 21 years old. Sorry, my bad. Okay, back to the recording. Bye. So let's talk about the conclusions, the discussion of the paper. First, some limitations, one of which I mentioned was like the sample sizes in the groups were uneven. Um, more samples in each group would give a better representation of like the whole population. Um, that's always like, that's low hanging fruit when you're going to look for limitations in a study. It's like you could always use more sample sizes because it's tough to draw conclusions off of a population based on like a subset of people. Um, but some other limitations include uh, the self-reporting nature of the study. Self-reports are always tough because they're subjective. The women who gave birth might not have reported like pain and cramping as side effects because maybe that's like what they expected to happen. So if and when it does happen to them, they're like not going to report it because they're like, oh no, this is just normal. This is what's supposed to happen. Meanwhile, women in the abortion groups did report pain and cramps um, and nausea as like health problems and side effects. And the authors note that these mild events were reported potentially because of stigma and cultural perceptions that abortions are not safe. Um, so maybe the people who got abortions thought, oh my God, I'm cramping. This is a side effect um, and like made it more severe in their head than it actually was. Um, wow, that was so gaslighty of me. I didn't mean to say it like that. I just meant like, I don't know, if they, there was like a stigma around abortion and they experience these side effects, they're going to be like, I don't know. Move on, Sam. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, those are just some limitations, some things to consider. The fact that it's self-reporting, it's all subjective based on who the person is and, you know, stuff like that. But in conclusion, the results in Dr. Gert's study reinforce the previous existing data on the safety of medically induced abortion. Um, and it also, at the same time, highlights the risk of serious morbidity and mortality associated with childbirth after an unwanted pregnancy, right? The people who had abortions had side effects, of course, but they were mild to moderate compared to the more extreme cases, although rare, there are more extreme cases of um, more life-threatening conditions in carrying an unwanted pregnancy. Pregnancy can be a very dangerous venture for some, right? Like in the current cohort of this study, it was more severe, more dangerous. People who gave birth had more severe side effects than those in the abortion groups. And that's like the main takeaway that I took from this paper. Um, but then I think like the broader implications for this is that abortions are safe, right? Nobody died. There were more people who got abortions in this study and nobody died. Um, you know, nobody even got seriously hurt or injured. There's another study that I'll cite below by Dr. Zane and colleagues out of the CDC and the results from that study, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but one of the results from that study suggests that deaths associated with legal induced abortion are less than one per 100,000 procedures. That's 0.001% mortality. So it is a very safe procedure. It is not likely that you will die from that procedure if you get one. So, listener, question asker, I hope this helps answer the first part of your question about the effects of abortion on the person's well-being physically. Um, to be honest, the side effects reported by those that had abortions were no more severe than my average period symptoms. So, sorry if that was an overshare, but cramping and pain and nausea. It's an every month occurrence for some of us, you know, so <laughs> physically those effects aren't any more dangerous than menstruating. Um, no, but seriously. Um, to talk about the second part of your question, the beneficial versus harmful effects on a woman's life, I think that's a really difficult question to answer or even to study, right? Because every woman or every person is different. People come from different backgrounds. They have different experiences. They have different access to healthcare. They have different financial situations. And I think all of these things impact a person's life. And they're all key in a person's decision to get an abortion. There are studies that show that abortion improves mental health, like it lowers anxiety, it lowers depression in people who experience unwanted pregnancies. So you could argue that there are more beneficial things for them. Um, but for many, many people who have very much wanted pregnancies, an abortion can be an absolutely heartbreaking, earth-shattering, but sometimes necessary decision to make. So I'm sorry that I can't answer that question for you. Um, but what I can say is that what the science tells us is that medical abortions, whether it be surgical or medicinal, are safe. It is so incredibly unlikely that a person who gets an abortion in a medical facility will die from that procedure. Abortions are healthcare and medical abortions are safe. So with that, we'll move on to question number three. This was a last minute addition after Monday night. 
um, I was like, you know what? I'm big mad, but let's see what the science has to say about this. So question three asks, do abortion bans work? We're going to use Nicaragua circa 2009 as a case study. I cited below a world report from The Lancet, which is a very highly respected science journal, um, that discussed the impacts of a total abortion ban that occurred in Nicaragua in 2008. And this article was published in 2009, one year later. I love math. I'm very good at it. The country, Nicaragua, banned abortion in all cases in 2008. There was no exceptions for cases of life-threatening pregnancy um, or for sensitive content warning um, or for cases of rape or incest. This means that even in a case of an ectopic pregnancy where the embryo implants itself into the fallopian tube um, instead of the uterus. So the fallopian tube, let's do some... <laughs> Let's do some biology, shall we? We didn't really do a lot of biology today. The fallopian tube is an extension, sort of. It's like a thing that hangs off the sides of the uterus, but it's not exactly like the uterus. The uterus, I'm, I'm holding my arms out like you can see me. That's why I need to do a video podcast. Um, but the uterus is like a more malleable, pliable organ. So typically when an egg is fertilized, it plants itself on the uterus and then that egg eventually will grow into a fetus. And as the egg, the fertilized egg is growing, 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 the uterus is stretchy, it's pliable, it's malleable, it'll grow with it. The fallopian tube is not malleable. It's not pliable, it will not grow. So if the embryo implants itself in the fallopian tube, what happens is the zygote embryo, whatever, will grow, grow, grow until it reaches the maximum capacity of the fallopian tube. And then it will continue to grow and rupture the fallopian tube, which causes severe injury to the mother, if not uh, terminated as soon as possible. So even in these cases of an ectopic pregnancy, women in Nicaragua were unable to get abortions because obstetricians, gynecologists, and family doctors were legally unable to provide the proper care and treatment. If those doctors did do the procedure, they could serve up to 14 years in prison. But just because there's no longer a safe place to get an abortion at a medical clinic does not mean that abortions are not going to happen. Because banning medical professionals from providing abortion care is not stopping women and girls, yes, children, girls, from getting abortions. In Nicaragua, instead, they had what's called backstreet abortions. Dr. Leonel Arguello is a doctor in Nicaragua, is quoted saying, Quote, some women, especially girls who have been victims of rape and incest, will do whatever it takes to get a backstreet abortion, where unsafe and unhygienic abortions are being practiced. Adolescents are dying as a result, unquote. Additionally, women with pre-existing conditions like cancer or kidney problems had died because they were not allowed to get proper treatment. Dr. Arguello said that if they could have had therapeutic abortions, quote, they would still be alive, unquote. The article also notes that the country's abortion laws have had the most obvious effect on poor women and girls. Rich women can fly somewhere to get a safe and legal abortion. They can fly out of the country or they can fly to big cities where they can get the care that they need. While poor women have fewer options. Poor women can't afford to take off work. Poor women can't afford 
to fly somewhere, buy a plane ticket and fly somewhere to get the care that they need. So it's the poor women who are left behind suffering the most. In one year of placing the ban, 33 women and girls in Nicaragua had died while pregnant, compared to 20 during the same time period prior to the ban. The measure, though, the author notes, is believed to be higher as maternal deaths go unreported by the government. So from 20 before the ban to 33 after the ban, maybe it doesn't seem like a lot to you, but that's over a 50% increase in maternal mortality. Deaths, deaths that never should have happened, but did happen because the government limited, outlawed access to proper health care. One could say, pretty accurately in my opinion, that abortion bans are not pro-life at all if more women and girls will die without access to safe abortions. Banning abortion does not stop abortion. It stops safe abortions. Well, if abortion bans don't work, how else would a government be able to lower abortion rates? This is question number four. Question number four. Um, I have to take a breather. I'm getting angry again. No emotion, only science. Okay. That's how I just snap on, snap off my emotions. It's not very healthy, but okay. If abortion bans don't work, how else are we supposed to lower abortion rates? Because ideally, sure, no abortions, of course, but we have to be realistic. I wrote about this in a blog that I published in September of 2020, um, the day after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. If you're interested in reading about this piece, um, you can find it on samsplainingscience.com slash blog. The blog is called Fight for What You Believe In. But in that blog post, I'm going to summarize it here, um, I talk about, because of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, feminist icon, um, <laughs> she was very vocal about a woman's right to choose and access to uh, contraception, and she was just really like a trailblazer icon. I said it already, but I'm saying it twice because I meant it. Um, so in that blog post, I talk about in honor of her passing, um, how studies have shown, science studies have shown that easy access to affordable contraceptives can actually lead to less unplanned pregnancies and better health outcomes for women of reproductive ages. Most notably is a study out of Washington University in St. Louis, the School of Medicine. Um, the first author is J.F. Piper and colleagues. It was published in 2012. And this study aimed to reduce unintended pregnancies by providing no-cost contraception to women of reproductive ages. So some background, about half of unintended pregnancies, whether they're unwanted totally or just mistimed, um, they were caused by a total lack of contraception use. And then the other half were caused by inconsistent or incorrect contraception use. The investigators of this study planned to provide long-acting reversible contraceptives, LARC or LARC methods, such as intrauterine devices, commonly known as IUDs, or uh, contraceptive implants. And these would be at no cost to women who were considered to be at risk for unintended pregnancies in the St. Louis area. So these LARC contraceptives are sort of like a one and done for a little while type of contraception. Contraception, excuse me. Um, so basically, you place it wherever, 
IUDs are placed into the uterus. Contraceptive implants are typically implanted in the arm and they release hormones. They're like a hormonal birth control, um, just that you don't have to remember to take every day, right? You just put it in and you don't have to think about it for a few years. Um, unlike the birth control pill that you have to take every day, or unlike condoms or diaphragms that you need to think about each time you have sex. I included diaphragms, <laughs> even though I don't know if people actually use those these days, but sidetrack. What's new? It, I mean, we made it like 40 minutes without a sidetrack, so this is kind of impressive. Um, first sidetrack of the episode. I'm watching Seinfeld on Netflix because I've never seen it all the way through. I've only seen like a few iconic episodes multiple times, and I've never like seen the full series. So, so I'm watching Seinfeld on Netflix. It's a show about nothing, right? It's super old school, super like 90s, whatever. Um, one episode I was watching last week, Elaine talked about her diaphragm falling out of her purse. And it was just like a reminder of like, oh yeah, this show is pretty ancient. Because I don't think people use diaphragms anymore. It just seems very, it seems a little outdated. But anyway, let's get back to, the, okay. In this study, <laughs> hey, maybe I'm wrong. If you use a diaphragm, that's pretty awesome, actually. That's pretty badass. I think that's like, you know, good for you. Anyway, this study, <laughs> in this study, they compared the unintended pregnancy rates um, which they me measured by proxy as the number of teen births, the number of abortions, and the repeat abortion rates um, in the St. Louis area. And then they compared those measures to regional and national rates. So 10 women between the ages of 10. <laughs> 10,000. Try again, Sam. 10,000 10, women were recruited in the study between the ages of 14 and 45. And um, the distribution of this cohort of participants was sort of skewed um, in a number of ways. So they were mostly younger. The median age of the participants was 25, um, even though the window was like 14 to 45. Um, so the participants skewed slightly younger. And then it was also, uh, the participants were disproportionate to the general population of St. Louis in terms of race. So the population of St. Louis is about 30% black. The number of participants in this study were about 50% black. So the outcome measure rates were standardized to the age and race distributions of the general St. Louis population. It's also important to note that the economic or financial differences of the cohort, so of the 9,256 people in the study, 37% reported receiving public assistance and 39% had trouble paying for basic expenses. And I think this is an important thing to note um, because it's already sort of indicating the importance of the free contraceptives. Remember that contraceptives were supplied to the participants for free. Um, so if these people, the participants, um, had to receive public assistance or had trouble paying for basic expenses, they didn't have a lot of flexible income, so it's possible that they didn't have the means to pay for contraception. So it's important that it's free or of subsidized cost. Anyway, at the start of the study, the participants chose their desired contraceptive of choice, so either the IUD or the implant. Over 75% of the participants chose one of those um, the remaining less than 25% either chose an oral contraceptive pill or the patch or another form of contraception. So getting into the results, the study lasted, I think, about three years. Um, and over the course of the study, the teen birth rate, which was measured by births per 1,000 females that were between the ages of 15 and 19, um, the teen birth weight birth rate 
in the study cohort was 6.3 per 1,000. So 6.3 girls per 1,000 girls were giving birth. That value is, was, at the time of the study, 80% lower than the national U.S. rate. The national U.S. rate was 34.1 per 1,000. 80 times lower. And what's the difference? These participants were given free contraceptives. And it cut the teen birth rate by 80%. That's huge. When considering total number of abortions during the three-year study, the number of abortions performed at the Reproductive Health Services in St. Louis City and County significantly decreased by 20% over the three years, so between 2008 and 2010, while the rates of abortions in all other counties in Missouri where the study was not taking place, so like just surrounding areas where they were not recruiting um, participants and they weren't giving birth control out for free, those counties had no significant change in number of abortions over that time period. So within this county, they saw a reduction in abortions, number of abortions, by giving out, um, by giving out free contraceptives. These results support the fact that accessible contraceptives, such as ones provided to the participants in the St. Louis area, can lower the incidence of unintended pregnancy and result in fewer abortions and better, more healthy outcomes for adolescents and women. In my opinion, I said this before, but I want to say it again, one of the keys to this study was the fact that these contraceptive methods were affordable. That can allow for women with less or no flexible income to still have access to contraceptives, preventing unplanned pregnancies, and additional financial burdens. There are some limitations in this study, one being the proxy measures of the unintended pregnancy, being teen birth rate and abortions and repeat abortions. Um, also, this study uses a very specific sample within a single city, within a single region of this country, so perhaps studies similar to this design can be repeated in other cities in the U.S. Um, it might have already been repeated. I haven't actually checked, um, but it would be cool to see. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. But maybe we do like a national experiment, right? Like, what if we just give free contraceptives to everybody? I don't know. I'm just thinking, thinking out loud. You know, wouldn't that be crazy? Anyway. But even with these limitations, there's a strong argument that cheap and accessible, long-acting reversible contraceptives have beneficial effects on women of reproductive ages by reducing the numbers of unintended pregnancies and, in turn, abortions. For that reason, I will be donating to Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood Action Fund works to protect reproductive rights of people across the country. This includes sex education, birth control resources, women's health screenings, including STI testing and breast cancer screenings, abortion access, and more. I've supported Planned Parenthood many times in the past, and I will be supporting them again. If you feel so inclined, you can donate as well. Um, go to weareplannedparenthoodaction.org to give a one-time or monthly donation. I also will be supporting abortion funds I'm pasting a link in the episode description to an article on The Cut, which is called Donate to an Abortion Fund Right Now. This article breaks down the states with lawmakers who will likely try to prohibit abortion if and when o Roe v. Wade is overturned. So these states like Mississippi, Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, and South Dakota. It also outlines states in which abortion will remain, but where the right to an abortion is still not legally protected. And those are states like Pennsylvania, New Mexico, and Virginia. The article outlines how to help these states, um, which funds help uh, people access abortion in those states. And it goes state by state, so you can kind of go through and um, if you'd like to, you can. 
donate if you can. Um, but kind of blew my mind. In that article, there was 31 of 50 states. So in all, the right for a person to access a safe abortion may be affected in up to 31 states, more than half the country. So that's a little sad and a little scary. Um, a little. It's sad and scary, period. In closing, I, I know I said I didn't want to make this an opinion piece. I know it's not an opinion podcast, but I do just want to say this. Um, like I said with climate change, like I said with COVID, like I'm saying right now, again, with regard to abortion, we need to follow the science. We need to follow facts. And the science, the facts, are telling us that medical abortions are safe and that banning abortions is not safe. We need to listen to what the science is telling us. And we need to vote. It feels far off. It feels like helpless. But you need to vote. Midterm elections in the United States are this year, 2022. So do me a favor right now. Open your web browser of choice. Go to vote.org and check your voter registration. Update it if you need to. And then vote. Vote for people who follow the science, who follow the facts in each and every aspect of our lives. Please. Please. <sighs> all right. That's all for this week. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. Connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions to samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam explained to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.